Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I'm Diane Hartshorn. I don't know about you, Diane. I don't know what your weather was like today, but today was a perfect fall day up here in Denver. It was chilly. It was a bit brisk. So yes, it falls around the corner. And isn't is today the first day of fall or is tomorrow? That tomorrow, technically, yes. as we're recording this. Yes. So tomorrow is yeah. the official first day of fall, which I'm so excited. Although I had a coworker kind of burst my bubble this morning when she told me that we're supposed to have another couple of 80 degree days later in the week. And I said, no, but it's okay. Yeah. Although Not 80 yet. degrees is still better than 90 degrees or hotter. Oh, definitely. I'll take it. But I was so happy to like wear some of my fall wardrobe pieces today and not have to like, I don't know. I was ready to pull out the boots and I, you know, yeah. the shawl, as you can see, while we're recording, I have my shawl on because and it's very pretty. Thanks. We had the house all opened up. We were letting the air through, but mm-hmm. then as it started to get dark, it got really chilly. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll add a layer. I'm not turning the heater on yet, but I'll add a layer. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I went someplace real quick tonight and I had these jeans on that actually would wear work with boots. And I'm like, do I take my boots out? <laughs> I can wear my boots now. But I, know. I didn't. I just found one of the shoes. But yeah, it's like boot and sweater weather. I know. I'm so excited. Weather. I put up our fall decorations around the house over the weekend. So it feels like fall inside, even if it didn't feel like fall outside, mm-hmm. because I think it was about 90 degrees the day I was doing that outside. But yeah, I was like inside and I had the, the fall candles out. So it smells like fall in the house. I was so ready for it. And now yeah. As the leaves start changing, it'll be a great time to go out and do some photographs of the cemeteries mm-hmm. and get the, the colors. I love, that's my favorite season for photographing in the cemeteries this fall. Because it's something about the light too. The light, yeah. yeah. The light and the coloring, you know, you get the different colors and stuff that you just don't get the rest of the year. So yeah, it's just something, I don't know, it like glows almost. Yeah. Oh, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, that does glow. I love that. I'm looking forward to getting some fall photos. Yeah. My husband just bought our traditional little pumpkin sitting on top of the TV. And then since we're going to be getting ready for an event here next weekend, I know we're, I'm going to be pulling out a bunch of the Halloween stuff because he doesn't like me putting a lot of it up because some of it is sort of creepy. Um, (laughs) So I think it may be being used at the cemetery this year. So Yes. That's okay. Yeah. I'm holding off on the actual Halloween decorations until we get to October, but come October, it's all going to come out. So it's yep. just autumn right now, but yeah, in October I'll Come pull on. out. Um, we have, I have a Halloween village that'll come out and all of that'll come out and go up, but yeah, I'll wait a little bit longer on the Halloween, but I'm super yep. excited, ready for it, ready to celebrate, ready for our event. Oh, We're, I'm so ready. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, so excited. Cause and when this event comes out or when this episode airs, we're doing another um, rehearsal and oh yeah, on the day. Yeah. I cannot wait. Cause the first one was tremendous. And I mean, yeah, now they've had two people. more weeks to rehearse yeah. since our last rehearsal. So it's going to, they're going to be just, they are going to blow audiences away. They blew so, me away and yeah. I can't wait. I can't. Oh, I, I am. I'm so looking forward to what, the people who are coming to this event are going to be able to be a part of. And yes, yeah, I'm really excited for our people who, you know, taking the chance, buying the tickets for this event. And I'm excited for them. Yes. It's going to, I'm yeah. so excited. It's going to be so much fun. And we, people are excited. People are talking about it. So that's mm-hmm. all 
like super good for us. So we're excited. We're going to do that. But today we will do our episode. We also, for our listeners, just so they know, we have a lot of guests coming up in the next several episodes that they just all happened that they were all available, but we, it's a variety of topics. Like we're going to be talking Mm -hmm. about, um, the Jewish genealogy project. We're going to be talking about Edgar Allan Poe with one of our guests. We're going to talk about, uh, Lizzie Borden with another one of our guests. I'm excited for that. Um, We're talking for a while. Yeah. Oh, I know that one's going to be fun. We're also going to be talking with Eastern cemetery out of Tennessee and, um, how the friends of that cemetery are doing with everything that goes on. That cemetery has a long story to it, which I'm looking forward to featuring not the, I mean, the story's not great. It's kind of a sad, tragic story, yeah. but there's people that are interested. So we have all kinds of guests coming up. We have the Poe event coming up like the next couple of weeks for us on this podcast are super exciting. So we're glad to have the listeners along for the ride for all of that. And then of course, after all of that, we'll go right into the holiday season and mm-hmm. we'll be doing some fun stuff for the holidays. So, and I good. think if everything goes well, we will have a fantastic episode for Halloween. We will. We have something special coming up for our Halloween episode, which hopefully I can announce next week. I'm going to wait. And I want to make sure we have all our ducks in a row before we announce it. But yes, we have something really special we're trying to plan for our Halloween episode. So definitely stay tuned for that because yes. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And yeah. And next week. So not this episode that's coming out today, this one that we're recording now, but next week will be our one year anniversary. So we'll be celebrating that. We'll have a guest for that one. Yeah. And we're going to be celebrating that. And we will announce, I, I know we mentioned it last time in our last episode, but we will officially announce a new giveaway and we'll have all this stuff ready for a new giveaway. So we'll announce that at the one year anniversary episode. Cool. So keep your ears open for that. Cause, um, there's going to be some fabulous prizes in that giveaway. So yes, all kinds Those of things. Those are always fun. But as we promised in last week's episode, uh, we would have a new story to share with you this week. We didn't have one last week. Uh, this story was originally reported in the Bismarck Tribune on September 18th, 2021. South of the community of Mandan, North Dakota is what appears to be an empty field. But upon closer inspection, one will find there are 10 sad and crumbling headstones. These headstones mark only 10 of the dozens of souls who call this field their final resting place. The site, known as Greenwood Cemetery, was established in 1882 by some of Mandan and Morton County's first civic leaders. If you dig back to the cemetery records, you will find that the original settlers of the area had intended to create a grand, beautiful garden cemetery that was all the fashion in the Victorian era. They intended for graves to be placed upon a center circle with avenues winding throughout the site. Well, that does sound lovely. Doesn't it? It makes me think of the yellow brick road from the Wizard of Oz. Yes. And it winds out. Yeah. The grounds would incorporate the designs of several fraternal organizations popular in the area at the time, including a Masonic square and compass and a chain of three links, a symbol of the Oddfellows. Even before the cemetery was officially established in 1882, the site had been used unofficially for burials for quite some time. After Greenwood was incorporated, the cemetery would experience a number of problems. While it was located between Mandan and Fort Abraham Lincoln, the site would only be short-lived. 
even though the main path between the fort and the city bisected the cemetery and was well used. However, burials at Greenwood would often become difficult. With the Hart River flooding each spring, the cemetery became inaccessible for a portion of the year. Other problems also plagued the cemetery, though. Lack of funding caused trouble for the organization from the beginning. Even with funding, the organization had trouble staying intact. With all but one of the members of the board leaving the state, board meetings became less frequent. The members that remained were nearing death themselves. And by 1905, the Mandan pioneer reported that the cemetery had been completely abandoned. Already, the burial grounds were unfenced and covered in weeds and high grass. For nearly 70 years, the site would slowly be forgotten. However, this nearly forgotten cemetery is now the focus of a project being conducted by a team of officials from several county departments who are working to document the graves, research the cemetery's history, and brainstorm ideas for how to preserve the site through a potential state or local designation. They are also looking for volunteers to clean the headstones, the Bismarck Tribune reported. It was brought to their attention by a telecom company who had planned a project through the area when they discovered the cemetery. Morton County Commissioner Andy Zachmeyer has suggested that in addition to documenting and restoring the cemetery, a walking path be created leading to and through the cemetery and possibly opening it up to future burials. Well, thank goodness those gentlemen said something. Exactly. It kind of, yeah, it really did get forgotten for a long time, it sounds like. The cemetery has drawn headlines several times over the years in the Bismarck Tribune. A rancher sought to acquire the land in 1974, prompting the Morton County Commission to threaten legal action. The rancher later withdrew his request and the commission vowed to restore the cemetery, but did not follow through on any of those plans. A police blotter from 1988 shows the site was vandalized. A large marble monument and several tombstones were either knocked over or shattered. Then in 2008, digging for a water project uncovered nearly 40 unmarked graves. Those remains were reburied elsewhere at the site. A team of county officials recently visited the site to map and photograph the known graves. Soon, they want to clean the headstones and hope students in the area seeking community service hours might be interested in helping. So if you live in or near Mandan and are interested in helping to preserve and document Greenwood, Greenwood Cemetery, be sure to get in contact with the county to get more details on how you can help. You can visit their website at mortonnd, like for North Dakota.org. Yes. So hopefully, listeners, if you're in that area, give them a, and you're interested, contact them because I think really, I think this is going to be one of those situations where they're going to need people who want to be in it for the long haul. So not mm-hmm. only document it and fixing it up, but then continuing Same the maintenance. Yeah. So, I mean, civic groups in the area or anybody who might be interested, definitely look into it with the county and, and find out what you guys need to do to help save this cemetery. Moving on to today's episode, we will be visiting a very unique cemetery located in Iklutna, Alaska. The St. Nicholas Orthodox Church includes a cemetery that combines both Russian Orthodox burial traditions with those of the native Dinayana Athabascans tribe. For more than 800 years, the Dinayana Athabascans called this area of Alaska home before Russian Orthodox missionaries arrived. The Dinayana Athabascan people traditionally lived in interior Alaska 
an expansive region that begins south of the Brooks Mountain Range and continues down the Kenai Peninsula. They were a highly nomadic, traveling in small groups to fish, hunt, and trap. There are 11 linguistic groups of Athabascans in Alaska. Dineana Athabascans are people who have had to and still currently rely on the sea for their livelihood. The water is their living, whether the creeks and rivers near villages, the shore outside, or the vast waters of the North Pacific and Bering Sea. Knowledge of these resources and skill in harvesting them define the cycle of life in a village. The intensity of the weather that travels through the islands governs activities more than any other factor. Now, you definitely can't be a sissy if you live up there. Absolutely not. (laughs) Their culture has been heavily influenced by the Russian occupation beginning in the 18th century. The Orthodox Church is prominent in every village. Russian dishes are made using local subsistence food and Russian words are part of the common vocabulary. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, Dineina Athabascan men were the ones who hunted the seals, whales, sea lions, sea otters, sometimes walrus, and in some areas, they were the ones who hunted the caribou and bears. The women were in charge of gathering fish, birds, wild plant foods, and mollusks. The wild plant foods included berries and the weaving of fine grass basketry. Baydarka are a one-man and two-man skin boat. These baydarkas, along with kayaks or large open skin boats, were what the men used for hunting. Ivory, stone, and bone were all used in multiple ways. This included being incorporated into designs on containers, oil lamps, needles, awls, and other objects. Before the Russian Orthodox missionaries came along, the Denea Athabascan people, the dead were often buried in oval-shaped chambers or caves. According to the paper, shamans and sea oil, health and healing in traditional Alaska Native societies by Dr. Robert Fortune, Denea Athabascan people often lived to an advanced age, as shown not only by the archaeological findings, but by the careful records kept at Unalaska by early Orthodox missionaries. The latter showed that some 20% lived past the age of 60, and this few survived to the age of 90 or more, which back then that was very old. Especially thinking about where they live. I mean, yeah. the harsher conditions mm-hmm. up there. Mm-hmm. The elderly were well-treated and kept active as long as possible. The men continued to hunt in protected bays and shallows, and the women carried on their task, such as sewing or gathering berries, as strength and skills permitted. But I think that's the secret to their long life. They kept moving. They didn't stop. And they were respected. They respected their elders. Yeah, they respected their elders, and they kept them busy and, mm-hmm. and didn't, yeah, I think that's their secret. The Dineina Athabascans did not have an inordinate fear of death or dying. When a husband died, his wife retired into a dark hole where she would remain for 40 days. A favorite wife might be given the same honors by her husband. If both parents died, however, the children were left to shift for themselves. Corpses were buried in a sitting posture, but whether in a compartment of the communal house or in a cave, or whether or not in a coffin, depended on factors such as the time of year, the circumstances of death, and the individual's social class. Sometimes they made mummies by removing the 
viscera through an abdominal or perineal incision and stuffing the body cavities with dried grass. Such a mummy was kept perfectly dry and placed in a cave together with his best clothing and his hunting gear. Well, I wonder what the missionaries thought when they saw that stuff. Right. Or when they even observe, if they've observed any of their, right. And actually when I was doing the research for this, I mean, there, some of the papers I was reading through went into more detail about how they prepared the bodies and how they did the different burials. But yeah, I can just imagine what the, the missionaries would have thought watching some of that. In 1741, Vitus Bering and Alexei Chirikov ventured eastward in two ships from Kamchatka, eager to establish the geographic relationship between Asia and North America. Following the return of their cruise to Russia, fur hunters began sailing in the Aleutian Islands in pursuit of sea otters, foxes, fur seals, and other valuable fur bearers. Over the second half of the 18th century, Russian crews sailed even farther eastward, expanding their colonial reach to the central Aleutian Islands by around 1750 and to the eastern Aleutians by the 1760s. The early Russian period was a devastating time for the Din Aina at the Baskins. By 1800, little more than 50 years after the first Russian contact, the Athabascans population had been reduced by some 80% to about 2,500 people. Battles between Dinaina, Athabascans, and Russians, Russian atrocities, forced Dinaina, Athabascan labor, and introduced diseases all took their toll, and no part of traditional Dinaina, Athabascan culture was left unchanged. In the realm of subsistence, many traditional activities continued through this time, but some important shifts took place. Because many men were forced to work for fur hunting companies in the region, women and children took on increasing responsibilities for providing their families with food and other resources. With population loss came far fewer occupied settlements and the consolidation and relocation of many villages. By the end of the Russian era in 1867, only approximately 17 Denania Athabascan communities remained, a number that, with some fluctuation, declined until today. At the same time, social and religious changes were also imposed. Traditional leadership structures were used by Russian colonizers for their own purposes, with Denania Athabascan leaders soon finding themselves serving in the often difficult role of middleman between their own people and the dominant Russian economic interest. Hand in hand with these changes came a new religion, Russian Orthodoxy. By the late 18th century, even before the first Russian Orthodox priest had arrived from Russia, Denania Athabaskan were being baptized into the church by Russian laymen and Russian Orthodoxy quickly became the sole religion of the region. And I'm just going to take right here, listeners. So when I was doing the research, I came across several different names used for the indigenous people of the area. And it seems like over the years, it's gone from one thing to another thing to another thing. And so in my research, I came across several different words. We're using Denania Athabascans for this whole thing, but there were some other names. So if you happen to live in the area, and especially if you belong to any Mm -hmm. of these indigenous peoples and you want to correct this, please feel free. I was trying to go with the most current information on this as far as how to name the people. 
Um, but I came across like four different versions over time and reading different papers from different time periods kind of threw me off. So I was going with the most recent name on. Yeah. Because we definitely don't mean any disrespect. It's just, no, no. And when I was reading certain tribal things on different websites, I was like, okay, there's a lot going. So in case we're wrong, I'm hoping I got it right. I was trying my best to make sure we're using the correct names in this. All of this leads us to St. Nicholas's Russian Orthodox church. The old St. Nicholas church was constructed in Nick around 1870, although it may have been done as early as 1830. It was moved in around 1900 to Eklutna, where it was actively used until it was replaced by the new church. The old St. Nicholas church is the oldest standing building in the greater Anchorage area. It is kept up for historical purposes and is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Because Dinania Athabascan culture had become so heavily influenced by the Russian Orthodox religion that they began to take on many aspects of it while still retaining some of their own ideas about death. In the cemetery at St. Nicholas, you will find more than 100 graves marked with colorful wooden structures that resemble doll houses, but they are not for dolls. Rather, they are known as spirit houses. Spirit houses provide a place for the deceased soul to dwell during the 40 days it is believed to linger in this world. When a body is buried, stones are piled on the grave and covered in a blanket to provide a symbolic warmth and comfort to the person. Then the spirit house is placed over the blanket and relatives paint it in colors that represent the family. The final touch is an orthodox symbol, a wooden three-bar cross. The bars represent from the top the sign placed on the cross during Christ's crucifixion, the bar to which his arms were nailed, and the footrest that supported his body. Some of these spirit houses are quite large and elaborate, while others are tiny and very simple. They are painted in shades of red, blue, yellow, and green. Mixed in among the houses, you will also find burial mounds covered in stones and marked by the Orthodox cross. There are also graves marked only with crosses, honoring the resting places of the Orthodox non-Native members of the church. But unlike in many cemeteries throughout the contiguous United States, these memorials are not kept up. In keeping with Athabascan tradition, which says that that which is taken from the earth must be allowed to return, the spirit houses are left to decay and crumble over the years. The St. Nicholas Church and Cemetery are still active and in use today. They are listed on the National Site of Historic Places, and people from all over the world come to visit this unique cemetery and learn its history. During the summer season, guided tours of the church and the cemetery are offered, but is open year-round for self-guided tours. I think I've seen pictures of this, and it is really very, very pretty. Yeah, and if you look at some of the pictures initially, you wouldn't even realize it's a cemetery. Because of the little houses, the spirit houses, you would think it was totally something else until you learn about it. But, and I did read when I was putting this together that they just finished up their actual official tour season. So now if you, you can still go, if you're in the area, it's just, you won't get an official tour. It's just a whole self-guided thing at this point. By the late 20th century, the Denaina Athabascan people were bringing back many traditional cultures, including subsistence hunting and gathering practices crafts, and their language. Today, most Denania Athabascan peoples live a subsistence lifestyle. This includes fishing, hunting, and gathering berries. 
During the summer months, a large number of Denania Athabascan families spend their time harvesting traditional foods and preserving them for the winter. As always, we hope this podcast may inspire you to go and research these and other stories further for yourself. You can always start by going to the show notes on our website, theordinaryextraordinarycemetery.com, where you will find the resources we use to research this and all of our other episodes. Also, if you have enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. If you do not use either of those services, you can also leave a review directly on our website, or you can visit us on our social media pages, Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, or on Twitter at Ord Extra Sim. We would also be extremely grateful if you would share us with your family and friends. Thank you for listening. Until we meet again.